Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. Well, it's good to be with you this morning. Um, it is a kind of a bit of a different kind of day out there. I guess it's not that different if you if you spend any time living in the Maritimes. It's kind of typical maritime weather. This is the second Sunday of the year and the second storm Sunday of the year. And uh, we're just giving that over to the Lord. Uh, Florence is flying out, planned to schedule to fly to Halifax at 7 tonight. What time is your guys' flight, uh, Doug and Glenda and Allie? 7.30 tomorrow morning. But they, they all appreciate your prayer, uh, Doug and Glenda and and their family really appreciate your prayer for them this coming week as they head for Regina and trial is going to be taking place there. Lots, lots of stuff that we could pray about there. Um, I hope you will join us in prayer for that. So we're in this uh, three-year journey through the Bible. And uh, the curriculum that we're following, which is called the Gospel Project, is a curriculum that has... Uh, Adult uh, studies, youth studies, and children's studies, and we're, so we're going through it together. So as a family of families, we're studying Scripture together. I think that that's what we're supposed to do. I believe that the church is supposed to do that, and I think that this is a really good thing that we're doing. Today, we're, uh, we're in the book of Ezra, and the curriculum puts us into the first three chapters, and that's when the, we sent out the reading this week, we sent out... Uh, Ezra chapters 1, 2, and 3. And then next week we were supposed to do chapters 4, 5, 6 along with the book of Haggai. And after assessing the situation and chatting with uh, Josh, we've decided to change it up just a little bit. And so we're going to be focusing today on the book of Ezra, a little bit on the book of Nehemiah, make mention of that. And uh, But in the next week, Josh is going to uh, take us into the book of Haggai. Uh, and I think the... the reason for that will be uh, self-explanatory as we get into this material. Uh, going in the canonical order, that's the order that the books appear in the Bible, Ezra follows right behind the book of Second Chronicles. I read a few verses last uh, Sunday from the last chapter of Second Chronicles, uh, the fall of Jerusalem and the exile of the people. God had told the people that if they... Um, even through Moses, God said, if they forsook the covenant that he made with them, that he would scatter them among the nations. Let's take a quick look. Deuteronomy 28, verses 64 and 65 through 66 and 67 says, The Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. This is Deuteronomy chapter 28, God speaking through Moses to the people, telling them what would happen if they forsook the, the covenant that he made with them. He said, I will scatter you among all the peoples from one end of the earth to the other. Uh, take note of that, because that is an important statement. I will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. And among these nations you shall find no respite, and there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But the Lord will give you there a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. Night and day you shall be in dread and have 
no assurance of your life. In the morning you say, I, if only it was the evening. And in the evening you say, if only it were morning, because the dread of your heart shall, uh, the, your heart shall feel and the sights that your eyes shall see. So pretty ominous, right? But God told them what would happen. And, of course, now as we have been in uh, the book of Daniel recently, where we've been dealing with that whole period of time referred to as the exile, principally that 70 years that Jason made reference to a few moments ago. Um, so this period of time following the fall of Jerusalem is typically referred to as the time of the exile. And we uh, now we're, we're uh, talking about the return and so God had already, had also predicted, prophesied through Moses that as well. Let's take a quick look at Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 through 5. It says, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, the blessing was if they obeyed, the curse was if they disobeyed, uh, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations. Notice that, among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart, with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you back. Speaking hyper hyperbole, um, you know, like just it doesn't matter where. Like I'm going to scatter you to the ends of the earth, and no matter where you are, I will bring you back. And the Lord your God, verse 5, will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it, and he will make you more prosperous and more numerous than your fathers. Uh, it's kind of like a play on words a little bit uh, when you read these passages where God talks about returning the people to the land because it's, it's, it's like he says, when you return to me, I will return you. And it's cause that kind of idea. So uh, it's uh, um, not just about uh, God returning the people to the land, but the people returning their hearts to God, and that's important to note as well. And then, as mentioned, Jeremiah 29, 10 and 11, not the only place in Jeremiah where we have this uh, uh, prophecy, but Jeremiah 29, 10 and 11 says, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future, and a hope. And so this message today is on the book of Ezra, but the subtitle is A Future and a Hope. Remember, too, that the promises, the promise of the return to the land, uh, that a lot of other promises depend on this promise. God promised he would return them to the land, but a lot of other promises that God made hinge on that promise. Foremost among those promises is the promise of a Messiah king from the line of David. And the kingdom and the power and the glory and the honor of an eternal king with an eternal kingdom with justice and righteousness and peace that would be centered in Jerusalem but would flow to the ends of the earth. A future and a hope 
that was their future and their hope. One example, and we'll just look at one quick example that you'll be familiar with, coming out of the Christmas season, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So you notice all the superlatives there. It's like this glory and honor and power and justice and peace and, and uh, from to the ends of the earth for all eternity. So this is an incredible example, though only one example, of the prophets uh, speaking of the grandeur of the envisioned Messiah King and his kingdom. So all this forms the historical cultural background uh, for the book of Ezra, which is all about the return of the exiles from Babylon to Jerusalem. So as we jump into this, let's talk a little bit about um, some outline. There's a few different ways uh, we could outline uh, this, this material that we're in. Um, Ezra and Nehemiah were originally one book. In the Hebrew Bible, they are one book. Uh, it's believed that they were written by one person, and that's why it's helpful to talk about them together. And we're going to be spending a couple of weeks, um, three, four weeks' time, in the book of Nehemiah, but we're going to be talking about these books together today because they, they go together and they belong together, and so it's important that we understand that the overall kind of, of uh, theme of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah has been mentioned numerous times this morning is the return to the land under Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, but first under a man named Zerubbabel. So in terms of the outline then, we can, I'm going to suggest three ways that it could be outlined in very broad general terms. One way is to say there's four sections. There's the, um, uh, the return and rebuilding of the temple uh, in Ezra, recorded in Ezra chapter 1 through 6 under Zerubbabel and Jeshua, the high priest. Uh, Zerubbabel uh, means planted in Babylon. Zerubbabel was of the, the house and lineage of David. Uh, Jeshua or Joshua, the high priest, would have been, of course, of the, the tribe of Levi. And they together set it with a group uh, in, and, and go back and, and rebuild the temple. That's outlined in, uh, in uh, Ezra 1 through 6. And then in Ezra 7 through 10, we have Ezra coming with his group of exiles and he establishes the teaching of the law and the reordering of society according to the law. And then you have the book of Nehemiah. In Nehemiah chapter 1 through 7, you have the, the rebuilding of the city walls under the leadership of Nehemiah. And then uh, Nehemiah 8 through 13, the teaching of the law and reordering of society under Ezra. Ezra and Nehemiah were contemporaries. That's one way to outline it, say 1, 2, 3, 4. Another way that we could outline it is to say that Ezra and Nehemiah are, are the story, the line of Ezra and Nehemiah together uh, can be divided into three sections under three main characters. The first character being uh, Zerubbabel, 
Uh, the second character being Ezra, and the third character being Nehemiah. So you set up like three stories. Each three, each three of those stories begin with a decree of a Persian king to rebuild the nation, which is followed by opposition. And then in each case, there's kind of a climax, but it's really kind of an anticlimactic climax, if there is such a thing. Or this is the way I prefer to outline the, those, the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, and that's to say that there's um, kind of two sections. Uh, there's uh, the first six chapters of Ezra, which is all about Zerubbabel of the tribe of uh, Judah and of David, along with Jeshua, or Joshua, the high priest descended from Aaron, who returned to the land and rebuilt the temple. And then that's Ezra's chapter 1 through 6. And then some 80 years later, Ezra and Nehemiah, who were contemporaries, uh, returned to the land, uh, bringing another contingency of, uh, of uh, troops or, or, or peoples. And uh, Nehemiah, we're not sure about his lineage, but he seems to be a kind of a governing, kingly-type personality, whereas Ezra, we know, was of the tribe of uh, the Levites, and he was a priest and a, um, and a teacher of the law and a scholar. That's kind of the way that I, with the way my mind works, that your mind might not work that way because, um, uh, yeah, for reasons <laughs> that we won't get into. Um, so you can take your pick, but let's jump in. Ezra 1.1, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Um, the... the, um, the Persians under Cyrus defeated the Babylonians. If you were, if you were paying attention when we were going through the book of Daniel, that would be that would be clear to you, right? Remember the writing on the wall, right? So Cyrus, king of Persia, uh, defeated the Babylonians and basically took over uh, and became the leading uh, kingdom and empire of the known world in those days, and. Um, the history tells us quite a bit about Cyrus. There's actually, I mean, we have scripture, but we also have a lot of stuff from history. I want to quote uh, Derek Kidner. Derek Kidner says, A notable feature of the Persian Empire was its integration of a great diversity of peoples into a single administrative system while maintaining at the same time a tradition of respect for their local customs and beliefs. This was different. Remember Daniel and his friends? They took them to Babylon, they changed all their names, they changed their diet, they changed everything. They basically tried to make Babylonians out of them. Cyrus's idea was very, very different. Um, in fact, um, uh, Don, if you could bring up that uh, image of the what's called the uh, uh, Cyrus Cylinder. This is uh, the Cyrus Cylinder uh, with the... the, the um, uh, messages of, and this is an actual artifact from the days of Cyrus. Cyrus had this constructed, and it's in this, on display in the British Museum in London today. Um, but it was interesting, very interesting. Uh, you know, you've been watching the news? Yeah, I'm sure you have, because it's, uh, it's a little scary sometimes what's happening. But just, and I, I'd love to spend some time on this, but we're not going to spend too much time. But I wanted to point it out that 
in October of 1971, the, the Iranian people and the Iranian government, you understand that modern-day Iran is ancient Persia. In 1971, uh, they had a week-long celebration in Iran celebrating 2,500 years since Persia became an empire under the, the leadership of Cyrus. And one of the things that they had on display, they had a big parade that began at Cyrus's tomb and, uh, and, and all kinds of celebrations. And the, uh, one of the things that happened there was that the Shah of Iran, his sister, Princess Ashraf uh, Pahlavi, and I probably am not pronouncing that right. But anyways, she was the princess. She presented the United Nations General uh, Secretary General a replica of this cylinder right here. And she said this. She said, the heritage of Cyrus was the heritage of human understanding, tolerance, courage, compassion, and above all, human liberty. So I share that with you because there is a tradition, and it's a very strong tradition, I would say heritage, for uh, human liberty and freedom within the empire of uh, ancient Persia and modern-day Iran. And when you watch the news and you see all those people out in the streets protesting and shouting, you know, uh, about uh, uh, the whole uh, Islamic... Um, fundamentalist Sharia law thing and stuff. There is another very large, large movement, powerful movement in Iran that has a lot of history behind it for uh, a type of pluralism. Um, hmm. uh, I might mention that in a minute, but let's try to get back on track here. Um, so as it relates to our text, this is this is this is interesting because this this edict that Cyrus proclaims it's not just for the benefit of the Jews. It was actually a systematic governing. Let me read uh, let me read a segment of this. All right? I'm going to read one excerpt from the Cyrus cylinder. Says it's Cyrus Cyrus speaking in first person says, "I return to these sacred cities, the sanctuaries of which have been in ruins for a long time. The images which used to live therein and established for them permanent sanctuaries. I gathered all their former inhabitants and returned them to their uh, habitations. May all the gods who have I, who I have resettled in their sacred cities ask daily Bello and Nebo for a long life for me." To Marduk, my lord, may they say this, Cyrus, the king who worships you, Cambius, his son. Cyrus was a polytheist. All right? He believed in many gods. Um, and the, it wasn't just the Jews who benefited from Cyrus and the Persians. This was a systematic governing policy enacted by Cyrus and carried out by his successors. And so it's another example of uh, God using worldly authorities in spite of them being more or less ignorant of him or his ways. Um, the prophet Isaiah makes reference to this. Isaiah 45 verse 1 says, Thus says the Lord to his, appoint, his anointed, to Cyrus, this is 
hundreds of years before Cyrus, okay, comes on the scene. Isaiah's prophesying about Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped. Verse 4 says, For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other beside me. There is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun from, and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Notice there, though you do not know me. Uh, uh, God called Cyrus and used Cyrus, but not like he called and used Moses or David, or for that matter, how he calls and uses us. Cyrus was a polytheist. He was a pluralist. But God put him in place and used him to accomplish his, his will. Isaiah 45, verse 13, I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for a price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. So Cyrus does this. He issues the decree. He gives not only them the proclamation that they should go back and return to the land, uh, not just the Jews, but all of the captive people, and he uh, he supplies them with financial resources, and and he and he restores all of the temple treasures. You can read treasures. You can read about that in Ezra chapter one, verses five through eleven. Chapter two lists all the families with their leaders by name uh, uh, that return under Zerubbabel. Uh, and then in the last verse of chapter 2, verse 70, it says, Now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, sheep, uh, gatekeepers, <laughs> sheep keepers, I going to say, the gatekeepers and the temple servants lived in their towns and all the rest of Israel in their towns. So you have the people settled back in the land. Chapter 3, they, build a, they rebuild the altar. They uh, uh, locate, I guess, the... The, 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 you know, the ruins of the, of the temple, and they rebuild the altar that would be the brazen altar, and they offer sacrifices, and they celebrate the Feast of Booths according to the worship calendar that God had, had given them back in uh, the books of uh, Exodus and, and Numbers and Leviticus, Deuteronomy. And um, the last half of chapter 3 of Ezra tells about how they begin to build, to rebuild the temple, and they start by laying the foundation for the new temple that they were going to rebuild. And there's a very interesting statement there in chapter 3, the last few verses that we're going to uh, pick up on again in a minute. Um, so stay with me as we make our way through here because this is kind of a bit of an outline and then I just want to make a couple of um, extended comments about the material. Chapter 4, opposition arises, as it often does, and they frustrate the work and uh, opposition Opposition uh, forms an important theme in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. We'll be talking more about that, I'm sure, in the day, in the days and weeks ahead. And then chapter chapters four through six of ne of Ezra um, describe how this opposition raises up and how uh, the leaders in uh, uh, Zerubbabel uh, and his gang. Uh, appeal to the Persian authorities for their support because they're there under the direction of the Persian authorities. They have the, the approval, not just the approval, but the support. And, uh, and then uh, eventually the work carries on. They receive another letter from, uh, uh, this time from uh, Darius. You'll remember King Darius from the book of Daniel. And they're allowed to proceed with the work 
and they uh, finished the work of the temple. Ezra chapter 6, verse 14 and 15, and the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Idu. They finished their building by decree of God, uh, uh, the God of Israel, and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of uh, Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. So they established the worship system with the priests according to the law of God. They rebuilt and they dedicated the temple. They celebrated the feast of Passover. They celebrated the feast of unleavened bread. And, um, and this brings us to the end of chapter 6. But there are some problems that we're going to be looking at. Uh, when you come to Ezra chapter 7, this is the first time you meet Ezra in the book of Ezra. Eighty years roughly had passed since Cyrus issued his decree. We're now on King Artaxerxes. Um, and Ezra makes his appearance, and he leads uh, another contingency to, uh, from Babylon to the land of Israel. And chapters 7 through 10, we have Ezra uh, uh, on scene, and let's read chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zedek, uh, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Marioth, son of Zerahiah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, something like that, son of Abishua, son of Phineas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the high priest. Okay, his pedigree is nailed down. Okay, this Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given, and the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. So Ezra is a priest. He's a, a biblical scholar. He's a teacher who has dedicated his life to studying the law of God. Biblical commentators generally recognize Ezra as the beginning of a... Uh, somewhat formalized group that would become known as the scribes. That would be important as we come into the New Testament. Um, Ezra chapter 7 verse 10. Ezra had set his heart to study the law of God and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel kind of nice that they put the, the commentator puts that do it in there right study teach but don't forget to do right that would be important so the last four chapters of the book of Ezra as well as the last six six chapters of the book of Nehemiah outline a period of great proclamation Preaching and teaching of the word of God, principally by Ezra. So preaching the word and prayer and confession and dedication and reformation. 
this section of scripture that we're in is often pointed to as one of the great biblical examples of what we have tended to call times of revival. It's heartfelt, it's sincere, it's powerful, it's led principally by Ezra and Nehemiah, and if you haven't read through it, I really hope uh, that you will. But there are problems. And I want, in the time remaining, to talk a little bit about the, the problems. I'm calling them problems because I don't know what to call them. But if you read carefully through the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, you will notice some things. First of all, think about the temple. If you think back to the dedication of the original tabernacle in the wilderness under Moses, or if you think about the dedication of the new temple uh, under Solomon, you'll recall how in both cases, you've, you've read through that material within the last year and a half, and you'll recall that in both cases, God shows up in a very big way and makes it uh, impossible for anybody to question but what God is in this and he is here and they couldn't even, they had to stop the worship service because they couldn't get past the glory of God that was filling the tabernacle or filling the temple. This time, crickets. No mention whatsoever to God, uh, to God showing up in any way. No mention of glory. No mention of fire. No mention of smoke. No mention of anything, really. Now, you can call that an argument of, out of silence if you want, but I think it is significant. Now, I mentioned earlier that there was an interesting statement. Did you notice the picture that we used, uh, that we put up when the kids were getting ready to be dismissed? I know that that's not in my notes, Don, but can you uh, resurrect that and just bring it up here? As the foundation for the new temple was being laid, uh, the text says that there were a few people there who were really old, who remembered what we call Solomon's temple, the glory days. And the text says, was well, this what it says? And you can read it there. It's the last four or five verses in chapter 3. But what it says is it says that the people, when they laid the foundation for the new temple, all the people began to shout and praise God, go, yay! Except for those three guys in the front. And they were weeping. In other words, the, the people that were old enough to remember the Temple of Solomon weren't nearly as enthused. In fact, this is what the text says. It says that you couldn't even tell the difference between the weeping and the rejoicing. And I suspect that there was only a few people who were actually old enough to have seen that out uh, of the temple. I mean, they, we're talking like 70 years, right? And yet they were loud enough in their 
grieving and that that it, 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 it you couldn't even tell distinguish between the rejoicing and the weeping now how, how significant is that well i would suggest to you and, and there's no commentary there to say this I, so you know i'm we're, we're moving into interpretive stuff here right interpretation i would suggest to you that's that's parabolic I would su- suggest to you that that's a, a visual image of something that's going on here that shows itself as we study through carefully. Imagine these people. Uh, here they are. They're, they're excited. They make this exciting journey back to the promised land, and they are met with desolation and with the ruins and the shrunken realities that lay stretched out before them. Uh, and just think for a moment about the enormous prospect of uh, the reconstruction, not just of an entire city, but of an entire nation. A few of them had seen with their own eyes the holy city of David and the glorious temple of Solomon. Um, Others had been born and raised in exile, but they grew up on two things. They grew up on the stories and the descriptions of their fathers and their grandfathers and their aunts and uncles. And they grew up on the passages of the prophets. Prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and others who pointed and forward and painted these grand pictures of future glory and it captured their minds and it buoyed their spirits as they drove forward into the future, making that journey and, and setting their hearts to rebuild. And they longed for that kingdom that God had promised. But as the reality settles in, the reality reality doesn't even remotely come close to the scope or the grandeur of the prophecies of the Messiah and his kingdom. It doesn't even come close to what was. How significant are these things? I would point you to the book of Hebrews. We're not going to go there, but listen as I quote where we're told about how, Hebrews chapter 11, how the Old Testament saints did not receive the promises because they they had to wait for you and I that, and this is a quote from Hebrews 11, that apart from us they should not be made perfect, that they all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So it's hard to overstate the significance of those words from from Hebrews. And um, I don't want to get into the book of Nehemiah too much today, uh, but I will say this, that as we approach the book of Nehemiah, there is sort of a parabolic situation in the book of Nehemiah too. You may, uh, we'll be talking, I'm sure we're going to talk about it, how Nehemiah, how they were instructed them to have a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other kind of thing, working and 
fighting. And uh, think that that becomes almost a parable for life in this world as well. Then you have Nehemiah's focus on the wall of protection. Zechariah the prophet, a contemporary of Zerubbabel and Jeshua. Remember that? He talked about Jerusalem being an unwalled city. The nations would come. Just some, just some thoughts there. Um, one of the most striking recognitions of what we're talking about comes from the lips of Ezra himself. Check this out. Ezra chapter 9, verses 7 and 8. Now just, I'm going to try to slow my, my uh, sense of timing down a little bit here. I feel compelled by the, 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 the lack of time this morning to do everything that I wish would, I'd like to do this morning. But and I, have to, I have to fight that so that at least I'm talking slow enough so you can even understand what I'm saying. Ezra uh, chapter 9, verses 7 to 8. This is part of his uh, Ezra's confession prayer. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have given, been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame, as it is today. But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us as a remnant and to give us a secure hold within this holy place. And then listen to this last statement. That our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. It doesn't sound a whole lot like this big, grand kingdom, eternal peace flowing like a river to the ends of the earth, government being established on his shoulders forever and ever, does it? Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 36 says, Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. They were back in the land, but they're conquered people. That's why the term province is used throughout the book of Ezra to refer to the land as a province of Persia. That became a province of Greece. That became a province of Rome. Remember Pontius Pilate and Herod, those characters in the New Testament? Right? I think you get it, and I think you get the idea. I hope you get the idea. Um, so that's... Uh, one problem, as it were, here, and another one I think that's just as important, it's related to the first one, um, that I'm going to have to just touch on, that I, I feel it's important to touch on. Is the, 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 the first the problem I, I point out has to do with the, this, the grandeur or the scale or the scope of the promises of God. This one has more to do with the nature and the purposes or intentions of God. And what I'm going to say to you at this point on is, could be considered a little bit controversial, uh, I guess, maybe, when it comes to interpreting the books, uh, a book of Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, and it relates to the reforms that they made. Most conservative biblical scholars and Bible teachers 
laud the revival led by Ezra and Nehemiah. And I do believe that the revival was sincere. I believe it was heartfelt. I believe it was real. I believe it was centered around the teaching of the word of God. But I also believe it was also misdirected. This is where we're getting into some interpretive stuff here. You can listen, uh, if you would, for the next uh, five minutes or so, and you can you can choose to search this out for yourself. But if you read carefully through the book of Ezra, there's something you should pick up on. I don't have time to, to go, you know, take you through that. But look, take a look at these verses. Ezra chapter 10, verses 7 to 9. And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble to Jerusalem. And that if anyone did not come within three days by order of the officials and the elders, all his property should be forfeited, and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. That is a very autocratic, authoritarian, (laughs) heavy-handed approach. Then, verse 9 says, Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within three days. As I say, I don't have time to go through I can only find one spot in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah where there's any reference at all to anybody else having anything to do with this whole entire project. It always comes back to, notice what it says there, then all the men of where? Judah and Benjamin. Now we know there were Levites there because the priests were Levites. In fact, one commentary I was reading said that the priests were almost the only Levites who responded, that the mass of Levites didn't return. Two tribes, three if you count Levi. And you will also notice, if you study carefully through the book of of Ezra and Nehemiah, that, that there had developed an attitude among the exiles that I believe carries all the way into the New Testament. I think we see it in the ministry of Jesus as he confronted the Pharisees and scribes of his day. They thought they were it. They had very little use for anybody who wasn't a quote, quote, real Jew. Um, The term exiles in the book of Ezra is gola, the Hebrew word gola, and they were using it. The, The exile had been over for over 80 years, but they still referred to themselves as the people of the exile. And it became almost an honorable title and everybody else got shut out. Um, again, I can't really expound a whole lot on it, but remember how important, as we've studied through the Bible, remember how important in the storyline is brotherhood. Go back to the stories of Joseph and his brothers. Think about um, uh, in the taking of the land under Joshua, how important were those relationships of all those tribes. And, and, and yeah, you can, you can live here, but you've got to come and fight with us before you can settle here because we're in this together. We're taking this land together. And then in the book of Judges and how important it was, those relationships between all those tribes are right all the way up until after Solomon when there was a breaking and a dividing of the kingdom between the north and the south. And what had God said to the exiles? He said, I'm going to scatter you to every nation under heaven, but then I'm going to bring you back from every one of them. And I, I wish we had more time for this this morning because it's... it's um, you know, it would be so good to, uh, you know, to go into the ministry of Jesus a little bit and look at some of the things that he battled there. You know, the word Pharisee means separated one. 
um, reading from uh, a Bible study tools, Bible dictionary, uh, from the common people, from those especially, uh, let's just uh, read the whole quote. The root meaning of the word Pharisee is uncertain. It's probably related to the Hebrew root meaning separate or detach. From whom did the Pharisees separate? From those especially priests or clerics who interpreted the law differently than they. From the common people of the land, John 7.49. From the Gentiles or Jews who, embr- who embraced the Hellenistic culture. From certain political groups. All of these groups of people, the Pharisees, would have been determined to avoid in their resolution to separate themselves from any type of impurity pre- uh, prescribed by the Levitical law. Or now, specifically, their strict interpretation of it. The Pharisees were a social movement uh, and school of thought in the Holy Land during the time of the Second Temple Judaism. After the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 CE or AD, Pharisaic beliefs became the foundation, foundational, liturgical, and ritualistic basis for rabbinic Judaism. I'm, I'm, I'm basically out of time. We're basically out of time. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah end very similarly. Basically, there's pressure applied by the authorities on Ezra, and they have this large assembly of men from Judah and Benjamin, and they start this process of authorizing and prosecuting all of the, those who had married foreign wives. And they make it a law that all of those who, marriages, that those women be divorced and those children be sent away. And they do it under the auspices of the directions and interpretations, their interpretations of the law or the Torah. And uh, if I can find the passage, because I'm skipping notes here. Uh, it's, how's it read? Just please bear with me. There's a reference in Ezra 9 about, about a, being a holy race. Uh, Ezra 9, 1 and 2. Um, it's not the passage I'm looking for. I'm looking for the passage where it talks about... Okay, Ezra chapter 10, verse 14. Let our officials stand at his act for the whole assembly. There's a problem. There's a problem with authority here in these passages that bleeds into the New Testament with the Pharisees and the scribes and the, and the chief priests and so on. But then it goes on to say um, uh, that we need to do this until the fear, this is Ezra 10, 14. We need to do this until the fierce wrath of God over this matter is turned away from us. Problems with that, there's a few problems with that. One is there's absolutely no reference whatsoever to God being angry about the situation here. None. Now, again, you can say that's an argument out of silence, but I think the silence speaks pretty loud. There's no commentary here about this. The only commentary comes in the book of Malachi. Malachi is a contemporary of Ezra and Nehemiah. When I say there's no commentary on this in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, what I'm saying is this. We like to make heroes out of our biblical characters. We like to make heroes out of people like Moses and David and Ezra and Nehemiah. And we struggle when our heroes uh, fail us, when they make mistakes, when they do things 
And please understand, just because something happens in Scripture, just because something is done in Scripture, does not mean it's right or that God approves of it. That's where we're dependent upon the commentary. That's why we can't just read through the Gospels, for example, and just do everything that we see somebody doing there without going to the epistles to help, uh, have the apostles help us interpret and apply correctly what says in the, in the narrative. That's a really important interpretive principle, by the way, because narrative includes everything, good and bad and indifferent. And the only commentary that I can find on this comes from Malachi, where God says, I hate divorce. That's a commentary. We could go on to talk about this whole idea of this exclusivism that shuts out anybody from any other na nation or ethnic group or, or anybody that we think is just not quite ready to live their life exactly the way we live our lives. And we can go into the New Testament and compare that to what we see in the ministry of Jesus and the opposition that Jesus faced as he confronted that pharisaical attitude. And we could go on from there to hear the words of Jesus where he said, I will build my church and you will be witnesses for me in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And we could go through the book of Acts where, we're, where we see over and over again where God is bringing in the nations and bringing in the people. And it's not an us for and no more type of attitude that rules the day. Because not only is this picture in Ezra and Nehemiah a shrunken vision of the grandeur and the glory of the kingdom, it also misrepresents the very nature of the kingdom and the heart of God for the peoples of the world. All the way back to Genesis chapter 12, where God says to Abraham, and through you will all the nations of the earth be blessed. It's not building walls to keep people out. It's bringing people in, inviting people in. Now, there is a New Testament biblical sense that we are called to separate ourselves, but it's not from people. We're supposed to be separated from sin. Jesus said you'll be in the world, but not of the world. So I throw a lot of that at you today in hopes that you will you'll wrestle with it and you will study it. The book of Ezra and Nehemiah chronicled the return of the exiles to the land and the reviving of the hopes and the dreams of the people. The king and the kingdom God promised will come upon the earth, but it will not come yet, and it will not come easy, and it will not come without a fight, and it will not come as it is expected to come because God is doing a new thing. What is that new thing? Jesus called it his church. And he said, I will build my church. And Jesus battled the popular theology of exclusivism in his day that had galvanized the separatist spirit of Judaism that you see permeating the gospel accounts. And you can go all the way to the book of Revelation where it says people of every tribe, every tongue, every nation worshiping God through the gospel of Jesus through the shed blood and the reconciling power of Jesus Christ to bring about this kingdom that is not only grand and glorious to the ends of the earth, but is a kingdom that calls people in and celebrates the grace 
of Jesus Christ that's there for everyone, anyone, anyone who will. That's what Jesus said, right? Whoever comes to me, I will not cast out not even one. Whosoever will, it says in the book of Revelation, whosoever will may come. That's what it's about, coming, inviting people into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Ezra and Nehemiah prepare, they fit into the storyline by preparing us for the, for the entrance of Jesus Christ in the New Testament and the building of his church. They leave us disappointed because we're not there yet. We want to be there, you know, we rebuild the temple and we want to be there, but we're not there yet. But the hope is there. Someday, between this day and that day, it's going to involve a lot of struggle. And we're going to make mistakes in how we interpret the Bible, too, and how we apply it to our lives. But I hope we don't make this one. Let's stand. I, I have gone over, but uh, I, I hope that, I, if nothing else today, I've challenged you to read through that material yourself and read through carefully. Because the whole Bible is about Jesus, right? We understand that much? The whole Bible is about Jesus. And this, this section's here for preparing us for the, the ministry of Jesus. When you read those gospel accounts and he keeps running into these guys over and over again and he's got to set them straight over and over again and they say, oh, what do you know? You're just a Galilean. You're just, you're just illegitimate. Whose authority are you operating under anyway? Jesus said, I will build my church. And he is. And he will. And you and I get to be part of that. Anyways, seven minutes after 12. Let's eat soup. Father in heaven, I thank you for today and for this portion of your word. And Lord, it's, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around uh, two entire books like this in, in an introductory type of fashion. But Lord, I, I feel it's important, Lord, you've called us to study your word. And, and Lord, you've also called us to interpret it correctly and apply it correctly. And, and Lord, we are, um, we're so dependent upon you for that. But we thank you, Lord, that we are looking at it from this side of the cross and that you have poured out your spirit into our hearts and lives. And as uh, was prayed earlier, that you might enlighten us, enlighten us to understand your word so that we can live for you and glorify your matchless name. Lord, I pray that you would just build your church in these days and that we might be built on the, the truth and the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ who invites anyone, anyone to come and to give their lives and to receive life in Jesus Christ and share in the glory of your amazing, matchless, eternal kingdom. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.